we're running out of money, there's no time anymore to try to get revenue, it's looking desperate, no one's going to fund us, and, and we're fighting with this investor. We decided that, dear investor, we've asked you to stop uh, your negative conduct many times, uh, you've just continuously kept on doing it. You know what? Here's a middle finger to you. This whole thing is going bankrupt now. In keeping with theme of my material from Helsinki, Finland, just as one of the biggest events in Finland happens, Slush, today's episode is with my friend Taneli Tika, truly one of the OGs of the Finnish startup ecosystem who also actually started the foundation that owns Slush. Now, Taneli founded his first startup, Taika Technologies, at the tender age of 21. Before the company going bankrupt, Taika, akin to Silicon Valley startup General Magic, had patented technology that helped companies like Nokia and Linux in their core development. A serial entrepreneur and investor, Taneli has had more than 10 exits, with several highlights in his career from schooling yes Mark Zuckerberg about social media when he was CEO of IRC Galleria, then Finland's largest youth social media platform, to serving as CEO of a state development company, which today is known as the Finnish Climate Fund with something like 3.5 billion euro in assets. From being raised by a single mom to building and bankrupting a company and rising from the ashes to become Finland's favorite and trusted veteran entrepreneur, let's just say part one of my conversation with Taneli Tika is nothing short of inspirational. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves. I'm Sergeon Spellings, and on the show, I travel across the globe in search of the unexpected leader. Every week, it is my job to deconstruct the billion dollar moves of unicorn founders and funders, many of them underestimated long before they became iconic. Many of them unexpected leaders just like you. This show is about unfiltered conversations on success, failure, fear, and courage in the pursuit of the next big thing in tech and venture. Now, before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. About 80% of the listeners of this podcast have yet to hit the follow button. And it would really help me out if you would smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. The bigger the show gets, the bigger the guests get, and the more stories we can amplify across the global venture ecosystem so that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now, let's get started. We've been talking about doing this episode for about a year now, and I'm glad that you finally said yes to speak about the good, bad, and also the ugly about your journey, essentially. Mm -hmm. Growth, maybe. Absolutely. Growth through pain sometimes, and Mm. you know that's part and parcel about being an entrepreneur. So before we dive really deep in, let's frame the context a bit. Who is Taneli Tika, and what brings you to the world of entrepreneurship? So I'm an entrepreneur, investor, occasional executive, started in the late 90s. And since then, it's been about 10 companies that I've founded, a few larger corporations where I've worked as a part part of the leadership in some tour of duty, around 16 rounds of funding, roughly 10 exits on the entrepreneur side, and then a lot more exits and funding rounds also from the board of directors, sort of secondary role, not from the primary operational role. But many things going on, and it's been locally here in the Nordics, and then also a little bit U.S. China, rest of Europe. Yeah. So definitely someone who's been in the system for a while that has seen it grow from strength to strength. Let's get started with, I guess, the beginning. You know, what really inspired you? Do you think entrepreneurs are born or made? And were you born or made? Probably born. 
with the sort of affinity and curious mind towards becoming an entrepreneur. As a young guy, I was a programmer from an early age, mm-hmm. uh, from the age of six. My mom taught me uh, how to program. And I was also a gamer. And I saw many of these things that now have made social media powerful. I saw many of the same phenomena happy happening, same, same sort of laws of social conduct becoming real, even with gaming in the 90s. So that's a big part how I got inspired to found my first own company in the 99, Tiger Technologies. You grew up with a single mother really being a driving force and inspiration for you. She she actually taught you how to code. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, if we go step backwards, that I'm kind of half Finnish, half foreign, and my parents met abroad, part of a diplomatic mission. And back then, uh, Finland had curious laws about citizenship. So actually, the citizenship was determined from the citizenship of the father. I got born here as a foreign citizen, and only like at the age of six, I got a Finnish citizenship. And uh, so I've always had sort of a half outsider feel, <laughs> even though I've I've been born here and based here. And but parents split up at an early age. My dad basically moved to another country and left the family when I was less than two years old. So single mom, no family wealth, sort of very poor situation in Eastern Finland that tends to be a bit poorer than the rest of the country and her raising me alone. But she did a brilliant job, I think. She instilled curious mind towards technology and affinity to coding in me. She had gone to community college in the 80s to learn programming, and she totally aced the course, graduated with the highest marks and thought that it's so easy and just learned more and more, and then thought that it's a good idea to teach her two sons, me and my little brother, to to code as well. So I got started with that at the age of six, and before that, of course, some reading and math and uh, getting the sort of requisites for coding uh, in place. Wow, what what a story! And and I actually love how you picked up. I you know this is, we we've been friends for a while. This is the first time I've heard you say about the feeling of being the other, and which I think drives a lot of the work that you do in some way in not feeling like an insider in, in Silicon Valley or in entrepreneurship and sort of having that fire in your belly to do that. Mm-hmm. And here locally uh, in the Nordics where there is a lot of uh, social democracy and a lot of sort of socialism elements in the society, a lot of things that the society does in terms of free education, free healthcare, so much support for anyone who's underprivileged. Also, my background often turns into a curious sort of criticism towards socialism, Mm. because sometimes this socialist mindset goes as far that it's becoming completely fatalistic, that they think that anyone who comes from an underprivileged background has had a poor situation in their life, like cannot possibly succeed, that they they like 100% absolutely need the help of the society. And mm. it's not true. There are so many people who come from challenging circumstances like and still, yeah, it's not like everyone's a helpless case if the circumstances are against them. Yeah, and, and that has actually driven you to Very really prove yourself again and again and do the things that you're doing. And one of the things that you actually failed at very early on, and we're skipping ahead here, is your first business. After going to school and working with Nokia Mm part-time, you started Taika Technologies. Yes. What was the idea behind that and what happened there? You, You became bankrupt, right? Yeah, we started in 99, bankrupted the company in August of 2002. So like a three year cycle roughly from the whole founding, funding, amazing intensity in the work and completely running it to the ground, the full cycle. I would say that that uh, compressed 
into learning is better than a Harvard MBA. Yeah. <laughs> that it's, it teaches you so much to go through that full cycle. And uh, of course, personally, it's uh, devastating to see kind of your baby getting killed in the end. And yeah. it was for me also. But Taika, yeah, what was it about? Uh, in retrospect, you could say that it was a metaverse company. So we tried to do all of the same things. That in 1999, is this? In 1999. Wow. Okay. Far ahead of your time, as always. Yeah. There, there was some 3D graphics in games at the time. And there was some, some things happening with virtual reality and, and digital communities and online communities. No one had coined the term social media yet. And certainly almost no one was talking about the metaverse. Yet. But I mean the same thing. Online 3D environments and uh, socially constructed communities and tools for people to communicate and socially bond, do things together. Like as an example, Taika released in the year 2000, we released a product that we called with the name of Taika Presence. And this product was 160 character pieces of texts that go to the people who follow you. Sounds a bit like Twitter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And the idea for this was because, of course, you were a gamer and you wanted a way to communicate and thought about this idea. That's that's the inspiration. Yeah. In the international sort of gaming community of the late 90s, I had already seen these social effects of people forming very strong bonds. That We even had like Finnish gamers getting married with American gamers what? because they had associated or, or dealt with each other online so much and sort of a meeting of minds using text only mostly. So we, we recognized that that's powerful, that there's something in in these tools that make them very sort of profound to how, how much emotion people invest into them, how much time they put into that, how, how strongly it can affect their behavior. And around that idea, we found at Taiga that we need to make better tools. We need to make whole platforms of these things. And we basically need to construct something that resembles the metaverse today. So at the peak, because we, we talked a little bit about the journey there before the downfall, mm -hmm. how many users did you have on there? If you start with the funding. So I was I was a 20-year-old first-time CEO right. with uh, no background in startups, no background in getting funded or no background in venture capital. And I only had a team of people and the idea. We had no product. We had no prototype. We had no traction or an MVP. And we went to investors with just an idea and just a team. And we got funded for 5 million euros wow. at the valuation, pre-money valuation of 19 million euros, which is pretty good for a completely pre-product team. Exactly. And of course, roughly at the same time, the dot-com bust happened. However, we started the company in 99. Dot-com and bubble started the burst uh, roughly around March of 2000. That's when the stock market started to implode and things went to hell in a handbasket. And the company got this big funding in June of 2000. So three months later, when already the walls were falling down from the dot-com bubble. Right. So it wasn't pre-bubble. It was sort of in the middle of the bubble. We still got the funding. And then we scaled up to around 40 people, uh, very good engineers, building stuff with tools that were around in the year 2000. So not much. Now you have amazing frameworks, amazing tool sets for coders and so many things that you can use. And back then, if you wanted to construct something like what we attempted to do, you needed to program everything from scratch with C++. It was a lot more work. And we ended up building our own tools to such a level that it was more than a million lines of C++ code and so much work and hours <laughs> gone into the whole effort of constructing these social tools. And there was a curious coincidence that I haven't told you before, but we also had that gaming element in there because we were gamers. And of course, we thought that our Taika metaverse, whatever this social thing that we are constructing, it needs to have gaming in there. So we took this uh, young guy 
with his uh, startup company. We were like 40 people. We were funded. We had lots of muscle to do things. And this was just like him alone. And I started doing games together with him. And and this guy who was programming out of our uh, sort of Eng- English uh, country manor here, here in Finland. So the office was a, not an office building. It was this kind of a manor. So we, we placed this guy like next to our kitchen to code some games alone on, on the table. And and the person who mm-hmm. worked together with was, was uh, Ilkka Panen, the founder of Supercell. Wow. So we worked together creating games on the Taika, Taika tools and on the Taika platforms. And later Ilkka yeah. went into founding bigger things yeah from that experience love it so so tell me a little bit about then the user base like were you at your peak what was the number of users on your platform yeah at our peak we cooperated with companies like vodafone and a couple of other media companies in spain uk and the amount of users that we got in were like slightly less than than one million it was in the hundreds of thousands and it depended on the tool and the platform like how many of them were in the gaming part and how many of them were in the social tools like the Taika Presence part. That wasn't a very popular product, by the way. Mm. It, it didn't succeed very well in 2000. But yeah, it was like less than a million users, roughly from a few different countries. Well, for a 20-something-year-old first-time founder, five million in the bag and a great valuation, 40 people team and a million users, what happened? How did it feel then? <laughs> yeah, we for a while we thought that this is this is going to be awesome, and then we realized that okay, everyone around us after the dot com bubble bursting, uh, two thousand rolling on into two thousand one, and the sort of the tech depression just continues. Everyone around us is very gloomy. The times are really dark. No one's getting funded, and we we weren't positive yet on the revenue side. We had some revenue, but not enough to cover for the people team and all of these things that we were building. So at some point we realized that okay, this this is going to be really hard. And then we tried out all of the tricks that we could think of to get to more revenue faster. And it was really hard because in 2001, 2002, around those years, you had no payment platforms. Even like if, if you had a million users and you wanted for them to pay for your service, it's, it, it was incredibly hard to do. I mean, some telecom companies, they, they could invoice the users in their phone bill and there was complicated, very expensive credit card systems. Mm. But it, it wasn't like you... There was no App Store. There was no right. Google Play Store. There was no microtransactions for payments. Mm. And very hard to monetize this volume of users, even if you had it. Basically, we ran out of ways to get it done. And it was desperate times. I gained so much weight. I had a very unhealthy lifestyle. I was probably awash in cortisol and stress hormones and flipping in my mind because I saw my baby sort of getting killed slowly. We, the founders, we ended up kind of fighting with our secondary VC that we were funded by two two VC funds. And and the secondary one who had done a like a follow-on investment or a syndicated investment with the leading VC, they were behaving in an improper way, something that as an investor now, I would say it's uh, very unethical. So they tried to run the company to the ground and buy the assets. And they also tried to do this by talking directly to our customers, like phoning up our wow. customers and saying that, look, we have this company in our portfolio where the investors, the company is going bust and blah, blah, like scaring the customers. And we're like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. And we, we ended up fighting with them. And in the end, the fight became so intense that actually in the last moment, when we knew that we're not going to be able to pull it off, we're running out of money, there's no time anymore to try to get revenue. It's looking desperate. No one's going to fund us. And and we're fighting with this investor. We decided that, dear investor, we've asked you to start stop uh, your negative conduct many times. Uh, you've just continuously kept on doing it. 
Yeah. You know what? Here's a middle finger to you. This whole thing is going bankrupt now. So we we decided to bankrupt it as a sort of a FU uh, towards mm. the investor. And even with like some money in the bank, I think we had like 200,000 in the bank or 100,000 in the bank. This event actually made the investor, their whole fund implode. Wow. All of their LPs got to know about this and they were never able to raise another fund again. Wow. They, they shut down the whole whole fund because of this very bad rep. Jeez. I mean, well, they shouldn't be in business. So thank God you did that. And I'm, I'm glad you stuck your guns. Hold that thought. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Okay, so I don't actually know, but I do know that 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot. And for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit hubspot.com startups. In that time of desperation, of immense stress, with losses, and this is not uncommon for a founder, right? These days, it's complex more than anything. How did you decide to stick your guns? I mean, you were 20-something. I mean, to fight against the big man, the VC, in a lawsuit, what, what made you say this is the right thing to do. Yeah, and it was a tough situation otherwise because I had invested out of a very poor personal economic situation into this startup. I had invested mostly with debt money that I owned to the bank and basically put my life into this baby startup that I was growing as a 20-year-old. Tough decision, very tough decision to kill it. And I thought that at least if I do it, it might be really miserable. I might like financially ruin my life, yeah. but at least I won't die. I need to stick to the principles. Yeah. So self-belief that you wouldn't die at the end. Like there's worse things that can happen. You can figure it out again. Wow. Very impressive, Danely. I mean, so then you were 100K in debt. I think you were, what, 100 kilograms as well. You you put on a lot of weight because of the stress and all that. Yes. How did you get out from that hole into then, you know, uh, the next success story, which we'll talk about? Yeah, I had to change my life. I was renting a nice apartment in the middle of Helsinki and I got kicked out of that one. I won't, won't be able to pay rent. And also I slimmed down from 100 kilos to 70 kilos. I dropped like more than 30 kilos of weight in less than six months. I started doing a lot of sports and also did like stupid sting, things socially that maybe mm. ended up in some short-term relationships mm-hmm. that I shouldn't Yeah, and stuff like that. I financially ruined, massively in debt, and I had to plan my expenses exactly in an Excel sheet, like how much money I have for food, going to the gym for rent, loaned money from my uncle by like 5,000 euros to pay for rent and stuff like that. I later paid him back, luckily. So that's settled. <laughs> yeah. And anyways, very bad situation. And in, in the middle of this, I needed income from somewhere. So I went to work for a corporation, one mm-hmm. of these uh, software consultancy companies here um, as, a, as a kind of a senior business manager uh, running three business units that were consulting mainly the telecom industry, mm-hmm. Nokia and the local telcos and stuff like that. I lasted in there only six months. I basically didn't like it, ended up leaving. Mm. Then I was again at the moment, like, what do I do now that I'm again out of a job and what the heck am I going to do? And um, I knew some investors from before and they were explaining to me that they have this basically cloud services startup that's going bankrupt. It's massively in the red, uh, making so much losses. Uh, They're the main owner of it as investors. They kind of hate the current CEO. And would I like to take it over that it's probably going to be bankrupt? But you've done one bankruptcy, the next one won't even hurt. Go there, do something about it. And I thought like the best sales pitch ever, of course, I'll go there. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I turned the company around in six months. In six months, you turned it around. And how did you do that? 
it's basically with what I had about leadership. So instead of doing all of the mistakes like rookies do, like maybe trying to emulate Steve Jobs or whatever, instead behaving like a transformational leader behaves. So respecting people, trusting them, inspiring, motivating them, learning together, keeping this atmosphere that builds very solid, resilient teams. So only one person ended up quitting uh, out of that cloud company. Everyone else stayed and, and uh, really no one knew joint. So with the same people, we managed to turn it around in six months. And was it, you know, a different sales strategy or was it, or are you saying it's purely by addressing culture, you change things around? It was a major factor, this uh, culture and leadership, what to do with people. And uh, then I also extended that to customers, that we went to every customer that we have, and we said to them that, look, we are uh, in dire straits. We're going to be gone any day now. So could you possibly pay double or triple of what you're paying for our services? And the customer says that actually your services are really good. We like them, we need them, we'll pay you more. Wow. This was almost a universal response. Yeah. And then they also agreed uh, to use them as a reference more. So we got more customers and, and building on this six months turned around. Amazing. So now you're moving ahead on an upward trajectory and you continue to become a serial entrepreneur and eventually an investor. And I don't think we have time to go through all of that, but let's pick, you know, the next big one. And this was a question I asked you yes. if, and you know, you've got a Pretty long Wikipedia page. If I ask someone, you know, on the streets in Helsinki, Daniele Tika, what is the name associated with mostly? Older people, they know me from building IRC Galleria, which was the largest youth media in, in Finland locally. And it was a social media website founded roughly around the same time that Facebook came around, like slightly before, and very popular here. So Finland has only about 5.5, 5.6 million people. And this site was used by more than a million weekly. So it's basically the, the whole bracket of the youth. And also in like measured media, uh, when they poll people and they actually measure the media usage for real and include all of the radio channels and all of the TV channels. This was this was the biggest in the country. Like no one reached the youth quite like what we did. And I ended up uh, running that company as a CEO in a way that I, I first sold this after turning around the cloud company. Mm -hmm. I exited it, I sold it. And then I worked uh, in the acquiring company that was a publicly listed corporation. I worked there as a division president and leadership team member for, for a while and then jumped from there uh, to become the CEO of this IRC Galleria. So I joined the original founding team that had no business education. They were techies, tech people who had constructed something that they need for their own hobby, which was IRC. So IRC is this internet relay chat, a very old chat system that now uh, Slack is built on, Discord is built on, uh, basically the legacy of IRC. IRC is invented in Finland. So mm. these guys, they had uh, they had done IRC for years. They had chatted on all of these channels and had a social life going around IRC. So they, they had come up with IRC Galleria, so putting a face to a name. Because you know people by their IRC handles, the user handles. Right. And then you are curious, who is this? What do they look like? And, and they made a Galleria to show the pictures of who, who that is. And that's how the social media wow. site originally started. And I mean, one of the issues with your first startup was the issues with payments, right? Did things improve over time so you could actually monetize this sort of platform? Yeah. So this was around 2004, 2005, 2006, these kind of years. Now we finally had a way of uh, gathering micropayments from people. And it was mainly through SMS messages. What? So that they... They send an SMS message and, and that's the payment. They get the invoice in their phone bill. 
that was uh, what was going on back then. Right. So the revenue model is essentially like a subscription, and then you would pay for different products like emojis and things like that. Yes, there were there were three main tiers. So we've got advertising revenue, we got subscriptions like a monthly VIP package that you could buy, and then there were like in-app uh, purchases to buy emoji and these stickers like funny hats and glasses that you can stick on your photo and stuff like that. And so what what did this chapter? I mean, so then uh, in this company, you sold it in the end. Yeah, we exited in uh, 2007 for about uh, 50 million euros. Wow. And you were then how old? Remind me. <laughs> 2007, how old am I? Uh, wow. <laughs> well, you're 45 this year, right? Yeah, I was like just below 30, I guess. Just under 30. So this was your big exit, right? This It was, was my first big break. Your first big break, you know, got a couple of, uh, you know, Benjamins. I, I shouldn't call them Benjamins. You've got some cash in your pocket now. You're feeling great. You're feeling like you've done this well. I guess two, two questions on that. When did you know this was the right time to exit? And what were some of the mistakes, you know, one of the hardest mistakes along the way before the exit for that chapter? This exit was tremendously hard because the founders had agreed shareholders agreement between themselves that every single one of them had a full veto on exit. So if they exit, it needs to be like completely unanimous. Consensus, yeah. We were trying to negotiate with few options before that they rejected. And then, then basically we had two options left, a gaming company and a big media company. And we exited the gaming company. Mm. And it was it was really hard. <laughs> and so what did that teach you? I mean, was there was there an opportunity to pre-negotiate something different before you joined? Or? Probably with a like, less strict agreement between founders. We could have continued for longer, grown it bigger. I mean, we had started other countries. We had started Germany, Russia, Spain, other countries with a similar template. Uh, because this was all in, in Finnish, in the local, local language, um, and we did so, sort of localized sites for different countries that were completely separate, that if you're a user in Spain, the users in Finland don't see you, so it's a separate silo. Anyway, we could have uh, succeeded with that to a, to a degree. and probably... So you could have been the Facebook before, and, and you did chat with Zuck, actually. Yeah, you were back telling in those me. years, Facebook was, was young and new, and they didn't have good numbers back then. So by the help of an investor, we started a dialogue with Zuck and um, comparing our numbers to theirs. And, and he was asking like, how do you get such good numbers that this is amazing retention, amazing spend per user, the amount of time that they spend on the site is, is like incredible. How do you do this? And we gave him some pointers. And, and what were those key pointers? Back at that time, uh, there were all of these websites like Hot or Not that you put in your image in there and people rate you, are you hot or not? And one of our pointers definitely was that you cannot do that. You cannot put any mechanisms in that sort of scrutinize them and make other people rate them. Are they hot or not or anything similar? That you need to be able to create a situation where they can totally do their own thing. They can have their own social stuff going on without it being rated or ranked or without collecting like the amount of likes uh, mm. and, and these kind of things. So we basically said that do it uh, in a humane, nice way and you will see amazing change uh, in your metrics. And I think that's still true today. Still true today. I mean, it's basically creating the positive effect and that validation, right, is what people are looking for. And it's better than just like creating uh, things that are sort of artificial and fake. Right. Like, I guess Instagram now is an example that's slightly dodgy. The, the lives seen in Instagram are not very real. People who don't have that kind of fabulous facade mm. lives, they won't become super users of Instagram. And they could possibly if it's if it's like more nice and more inclusive towards them. Mm. So this was our point. If you make it based on likes, based on popularity, if you rate people, if you create these social mechanisms in there, 
you will only get like few really popular people that uh, use it a lot and then they have passive followers many of them but basically then you are stuck in a situation where the only way to monetize almost is advertising for the for the masses who are the audience but a lot better situation is, is that instead of a 10,000 active users you get like 10 million active users and then you have more ways to monetize because everyone is so much more active hmm, fascinating so basically a more community approach versus yes. a i guess creating validation and the fomo effect which which so much of social media is built upon today and it's passive consumption instead of like really being the place where you yourself are active in right so how i mean i guess we'll, we'll digress a bit here but what do you think is broken in today's social media i mean because you were basically one of the pioneers right we're, we're, we're building up this story about how you've been doing this since you were 20 essentially a lot of the basis is community a lot of the themes in the work that you do has been community bringing yeah. them together and building businesses around that what's wrong with social media today in your opinion like if you take me as a younger person and maybe even now sort of a dorky gamer dungeons and dragons role playing games nerd that uh, sticks to the cr- screens and program stuff and uh, doesn't do exciting champagne style, type of lifestyle what does it sort of offer for those people if if they sort of expose their dorky life as it is it's not going to be a positive experience for them but if they would have a way of connecting more with like-minded people maybe people who have the same hobbies they play the same role playing games other dungeons and dragons players they could be fabulously active in their own setting in mm. their own uh, interests instead of having this competition for the most likes yeah but arguably i guess that would be a discord kind of business model right getting people chatting on that versus social media which of course has created a lot of issues including mental health issues for young girls who are seeing yeah. these as you said champagne life that they can never you know necessarily have it's a tough proposition if everyone needs to have the champagne life mm. it's mm. not going to be easy for most people interesting All right, so so from there you you go on to do many other things and then one of the key things is of course also become CEO of a Finnish state-owned enterprise. How many other startups did you work with before going on to do that? Yeah, after IRC Gallery after exiting that, I started sort of my own mini family office with the exit money and I started doing angel investments and then I built a company called Doppler together with Marko Ahtisaari, the son of the president of Finland Ahtisaari and we sold that company to Nokia in 2009 and at the same time I built another company called Brain Alliance, which was a specialist software consultancy. And we also exited that in 2009. So I got two exits a couple of years later, few failures in between companies that didn't go well, and then some ad agency stuff, some board seats, some ASL tickets on the side. A couple of years later, I had done a tour of duty in a corporation, worked for a large software consultancy corporation couple of billion revenue tens of thousands of people and I worked as the head of innovation for for corporate after that I I jumped into this Finnish state development company that was a new entity that the government had decided that they want to establish this kind of a special investment company they asked as part of the recruiting process they asked me to create a vision and the plan that what's it going to be that this company is going to do uh, the plan that I created was basically attempting to do something similar to DARPA Defense Advanced Process Agency does in the US. So taking sort of moonshot bets into future technology, key things that could be life-changing for for everyone. It was established around that plan and me as the employee number one, only person in the company, CEO, executing that, hiring the team. And then I acquired about three and a half billion euros of funding from the government to this 
some of these elements of funding were assets that produce revenue. So roughly, even if nothing else was happening, even if the company just sits on the assets, they produce around 70 million euros of revenue annually. And we started executing on that. We went after 100 ideas, evaluating different things that happens in the ecosystem, different ideas that we ourselves had. And then all sort of changed after a year and a half of building that, because the political power changed. We had elections, new government came in. And they wanted to refocus this uh, government investing company into the climate fund, investing solely uh, into climate topics. Got it. So now it is that. Now it is the Finnish climate fund. Mm. But but one and a half years is still significant. Acquiring 3.5 billion euros under your belt. I mean, that's pretty significant. What did that teach you about going into politics then? I learned a lot. And of course... Being an entrepreneur by background, raising funding, negotiating exits and funding rounds and stuff like that, you learn a bit about all that and you learn a bit about diplomacy and when to keep your mouth shut and how to how to be nice to people to get them to do what you want. But this government-owned company was a completely different game because it had so much opposition here and no one really wanted a new three and a half billion euro entity getting set up and start investing all over the place and sort of messing up all of the old things that people were doing. And uh, at times it felt like there's maybe five people who want to do it against the hundred that don't like a massive fight all the time people trying to actively block me from every direction it was pretty tough that i had just come from being an angel in startup boards and being a head of innovation for a major corporation i had just come from a place where i was sort of very welcome that people wanted to work with me and they my presence and my involvement was well received and then i was the ceo of this government company and it was like completely the opposite i was like the persona non grata that people, people sort of hated me personally yeah. and, and wanted to destroy what I was trying to build and it was uh, mm. mentally pretty tough actually to, yeah. to face that Hold that thought My First Million hosted by Sam Parr and Shan Puri is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network the audio destination for business professionals My First Million features amazing guests like Alex Hermosi Sofia Omoroso Hassan Minaj sharing their secrets for how they made their first million and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunities An episode I really liked, a recent one on how Sam's mother-in-law built a million-dollar Etsy business out of nothing. And I believe it involves pillows. So listen to My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. But I learned a lot how difficult it is to get anything sort of lasting, significant thing built around the political climate. It's tremendously hard. What would you say is your tip to someone who's doing that? And and we have mutual friends in politics as well, trying to make positive change. How do you make positive change in government when it's really tough? I guess the person who's in the middle of all that needs to have a really balanced, healthy life a lot of rest, a lot of psychological health uh, also, because otherwise they're going to flip. The pressure is tremendous and it's so so nasty when people are like aggressively against you. Yeah, but what's a key strategy that worked for you? For me, it was uh, sinking myself into hobbies and having some family time also that I had my identical twin sons born roughly yeah. at the same time as I was in the middle of this. Yeah. And I made also a lot of mistakes. Like my wife still remembers the nasty things that I, I <laughs> I came home after like a 12-hour day or whatever and I wasn't happy and I was grumpy and I said something nasty and she's still like <laughs> remembering. She keeps the record. Yes. But what was a key strategy that worked for you in like get, gaining influence, you know, within... It, it sounds like... And this is a great point because 
as an investor bringing the money, you know, you've built this reputation around yourself, you were welcomed. And that in, in government, it's a whole different ballgame. How did you win over to actually get 3.5 billion euros? I had to play a lot on my history and mm-hmm. on my sort of public image as a tech entrepreneur. Right. So I had to use that in a way that if anyone criticizes me and sort of publicly opposes me, immediately seems like they publicly oppose technology entrepreneurship and they propose mm. investing into the future of tech and into positive things. Mm. So I had to set it up like that, like bring all of my sort allies of cloud, together cloud and, and allies into yeah. that. And that was uh, really maybe the main reason why we managed to get the funding and managed to establish this thing, because yeah. the opposition had to be very discreet and they had to be secret. They yeah. couldn't, couldn't openly criticize this because I had set it up in a way that if they do, it immediately seems like they criticize tech entrepreneurship. Yeah. So let's shift a little bit. I mean, we've done a lot with your journey. There's so much more that we can really dive into, but I think we've touched on some of the fundamentals here. Let's talk a little bit about markets and, and Finland as an ecosystem. So you've been doing this for two decades, right? Two decades and counting. What has changed and what needs to change in the European ecosystem and how are market conditions today affecting the way you were thinking about it? Yeah, it's been a tremendous change. So from something that was almost like a too formal type of a business setting, everyone wearing a suit and tie, like in the in 99, when I was establishing the startup Taika, the investor events that I went to at that time, I was wearing a suit and tie. And Look at you today. <laughs> it's a lot better culture now. It's more inclusive. It's more positive. And there are a lot more people who get it with paying forward, with mm-hmm. building a community, with helping others, being encouraging and just sort of spreading around opportunity for others and realizing that it's an abundance that we live in. You don't have to like be really conservative and strict and cut like one slice of it and think that if I, if I get this, no one else, uh, or that it's a zero-sum game, basically. Yeah. So that has changed. The mentality is different. And I think one of the big reasons why it's built up so good here in Finland today is the gaming industry, the games. Finland has a booming multi-billion uh, gaming industry and so many famous games come from here. Uh, Supercell, Rovio, Angry Birds games and so many, so many good games. And they've been one of the main sort of cultural leaders in making all of this happen. Because here uh, there have been sort of agreements between the gaming industry on things like uh, that it's always okay for a games lead from a significant a billion euro games company. It's always okay for them to quit and find their own studio. Hmm. And everyone is okay with that. They always allow people to leave and, and basically establish competing studios, hmm. for example. And they've had an agreement about that. And it's always this uh, atmosphere of cooperation, encouragement, instead of sort of infighting. That in, in many sectors, in many countries, you see that the culture drives people towards infighting. Interesting. When you say these agreements, is it when you say you join a company, there is, you don't have that term of the exclusivity and, and sort of the gardening leave that bankers have. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, they don't put it in the agreements. That you're allowed to to exit and start a competing yeah. company. You can do that, essentially. You can do that. Ah, and, interesting. And it, it's not in the agreements. It's more like a sort of a soft thing that everyone knows. That oh, it's a cultural, so it's a cultural, like social agreement. Yes. Oh, absolutely. fascinating. Fascinating. So it's all of these things that have come along that have built the ecosystem here. Right. Besides this Arctic 15 event, I'm one of the owners <laughs> owners of of this also. But there's a, the other significant event is Slush uh, happening around the darkest time of the year in the fall. I'm also a co-founder of the foundation that owns Slush. So right. I've also been a part of setting up the fundamentals for that. These major events that bring so many investors here from throughout the world, they're another thing that uh, I'm so glad that we got to build that. Yeah. Because there were 
nothing like it uh, yeah. around here in all of Northern Europe, basically. And now Finland is sort of leading with these very classy events. Yeah, and really exciting events that is bringing people together and understanding about Europe. And, and so you've seen the market cycles, right? How are you thinking about this market cycle? I mean, you're an LP in a, in a couple of funds. You're heavily invested in so much of the ecosystem. Has the dialogue changed between LPs and GPs, between GPs and founders? With the situation that we have on the market, there's a really big difference between the LPs who really understand things and are knowledgeable and sophisticated and the LPs who are basically bullish at the top, bearish at the bottom, and they just go with the masses. I, I think the smart LPs right now recognize that distressed years, let's say it like that, tend to create very good vintages in, in venture capital. And they understand that now is the time to be out there and building something new. And when things get superheated again, maybe that's not the best thing to put in massively more than maybe then you need to chill and, and manage it better. But right now you sort of really see the difference between people who are sophisticated and knowledgeable and people who are just sort of don't know enough to make better choices. Maybe. Yeah. And and what's your advice to, you know, founders and funders in this environment? How should they be reacting to the market right now? It's uh, growth companies are always going to be growth companies, despite what the market situation is. You just uh, adapt and overcome to it, basically. And don't don't worry about it too much. Always as a founder, as an entrepreneur, it's not going to be the environmental factors and the market factors that kills you. It's going to be you yourself. It's on you. Hmm. <laughs> that even, even if it's a really tough market, I don't buy that the market conditions kill you. It's uh, You can do something about that. Love it. Love it. And a lot of that has really been... Uh, from your own journey, that mm. nothing kills Taneli Tika and his entrepreneurial drive. Love that. Well, so much more to, to be discussed, but Taneli, I think we've covered so much ground. Maybe we'll have a part two to, to dive deeper into other different angles, but let's move swiftly on to billion dollar questions. So quick fire questions. Uh, first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. Always ready. Your guilty pleasure. It's probably still gaming. Gaming. I love it. A habit you've picked up that has changed your life for the good. Maybe knowing more when to quit and say no. Mm. What makes you happy? Sometimes I think nothing makes me happy and sometimes it's the opposite that I feel happy without doing anything. Interesting. It's a very hard question for me to answer. Yeah. It's it's like, you know, entrepreneurs, they always tend to live in the future. They always tend to be like slightly unhappy in general towards the state of things, like never satisfied. And they mm. also constantly sort of mull over past mistakes and things. And I'm very much in that headspace too often. I love it. It's Interesting. complicated. Complicated. Entrepreneurs are complicated. That's why they're successful, arguably, right? Well, what's your biggest insecurity? Despite all your multi-million successes, your exits, you're one of the most known people here, I would say, in the Finnish ecosystem that really has plugged in mean, with Slash, with this and that. What still is Taneli's insecurity? It's maybe centered around like the idea of not being enough. At some point, if I find out that I'm uh, genuinely trying and everyone thinks I'm crap, that's like, would be horrible to me. Mm. What's an opinion you have that most people don't agree with? Most people here, I mean, Finns are massively invested in real estate. Like everyone wants to own their own home and no one wants to rent. So my opinion is that uh, owning your own home is not an asset, it's a liability. Don't own your own home if you have the choice. Yeah, interesting. Very unpopular here. Very interesting. And uh, this is a new trend that I've started. I've asked previous guests what they want to ask the next guest. So my previous guest is James Rogers, who has scaled a company to about $2 billion, Appeal Sciences, where he helps avocados last longer. Uh, backed by Oprah Winfrey, Katy Perry, Bill Melinda Gates. His question to you is, 
What's a lesson, a hard lesson from childhood that still sticks with you? Hard lesson from childhood. Wow. Or someone's advice to you. Something someone said in childhood sticks with you still. It's uh, maybe my my top one that I still come back to. Sometimes it's about this same theme of not allowing anyone to sort of kill you off and getting getting your spirited state together and just uh, rushing forward. Is that when I was at school as a young uh, student around the age of 14, 13, I had a guidance counselor, the school counselor that talks to students and tries to figure out where they should head uh, in the career path of their life. And my guidance counselor said to me directly, you are shit. Uh, you're never going to amount to anything. You're like completely heading for being basically an outcast in society and stuff like that. And, and she had nothing positive to say to me. Jeez. Okay. And, uh, later, uh, from the best business school in Finland, I graduated first in academic standing as the valedictorian. Mm. So. I guess you proved her wrong. Yeah. And you're continuing to do that. Wow, interesting that you remember that, though. No? Certain things impacts you when you're young, right? That you hold on to. Interesting. Mm. All right, well, Taneli Tika, always leaving us with some curious optimism, some interesting items to to think through. But always a pleasure to spend time with you, Taneli. And thank you and keep making billion dollar moves. <laughs> and thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Villain Dollar Moves.